What makes Christianity so different? Aren't all religions the same? How many of you have ever heard people ask those questions? Anyone? Yeah. I've been asked these questions many times in my life, but there is one person in particular that sticks out in my mind. Years ago, uh, I was working for Hollywood Entertainment, the corporate offices of Hollywood Video. I obviously did such a good job that they went bankrupt and went out of business. Um, That's why I became a pastor. No, just kidding. Um, But I was working in the strategic planning department, and they gave me an office mate who was different from me in almost every way. I was, uh, you know, freakishly tall. He was freakishly short. Uh, I hated numbers, and he loved and majored in economics. I went to a religious university, the University of Notre Dame, and yes, they are number three, going for the bowl game there. Um, But he went to Reed College, which is the opposite of a religious university. I was a Christian. He was an atheist. And the reason he sticks out in my memory is that when I tried to give my usual reason for why Christ is different, why Christianity is different, he fired back with something along these lines. I, I remember and recall him saying something like this, your theology might be different than another religion, but there's nothing different about all of you that say you follow it. Let me say that again. Your theology might be different than another religion, but there's nothing different about all of you that say you follow it. In my early Christian faith, I think I probably argued with him because that was helpful in proving his point, or I probably mumbled something about sinners saved by grace and went back to my computer. But in reality, I struggled to produce an answer. And my hope for you today as we go through the beginning of Deuteronomy 4 is that you become better equipped than I was at that moment to answer that question. Does it matter in preaching the gospel that the person preaching it has a certain kind of lifestyle? Does it matter in how we evangelize? Does it matter that the church is actually different rather than just says it's different? These are huge questions that have a large impact on proclaiming the gospel, and I would suggest to you they have a large impact on whether or not the people we preach to actually listen. So let's take a look at our text today. If you want to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. Let's take a look there. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. The first thing we see here as we're reading through this, you can write this down if you're taking notes, is the responsibility of God's people. The responsibility of God's people. And that is covenantal obedience. The responsibility of God's people, Old Testament and New, is covenantal obedience. The text before us this morning begins with Moses stating these words, And now... O Israel. It's a transition point. And remember that Deuteronomy is written in the form of an ancient Near East treaty between a conquering king and the people whom he conquered. And Moses is speaking this treaty as the mediator between the conquering king, Yahweh, and the people who he has saved and brought out of enslavement, the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they're about to enter the promised land. They're on the cusp of it, right across the Jordan River, about to step into it. And chapter 1 contained kind of the intro. It said, hey, these are the two parties involved in the treaty. And then from chapter 1 through chapter 3, we looked at the history of the background of their relationship together. 
And Moses is now concluding that section, the introduction and the the history of the relationship, and he's moving into a new section, which is the obligations of the covenant. What are the people to do in response to this conquering king? Now, unfortunately, this section and this really this book, including all of the Old Testament, is read in a way that says that the people of Israel needed to obey the obligations in order to earn God's favor. Right? That's usually how people look at the Old Testament. They say, well, these rules were required in order for people to gain God's favor. But if we read it that way, we will either want to discard all of it together, which is why you hear many Christians say, oh, don't worry about the Old Testament anymore. We're in the new, so we don't need to listen. Or we start to think of it as a religious code that we ourselves use to try and gain God's good grace and his favor. Now, both of these are incorrect. I'll give you two reasons why. The first one is to remember that the key to the first five books of the Bible, what's known as the Torah or the law, the key to understanding it is that it wasn't given in order to gain God's favor. The whole goal of the Pentateuch, according to theologians like a guy named John Salehammer, is to point people to a great need for God's intervention to cleanse their hearts. It's to show people that at the core of us, it's evil. Evil isn't out there. Evil is a line that runs through the human heart. And so the point is, is that even if you try and white knuckle to be good, God has to intervene in order to make you righteous or else you can't follow God's law. I'll remind you often as we go through the book of Deuteronomy of this text here in, this is in Deuteronomy 30, it says this, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possess, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, that's New Testament language, and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's almost like Jesus is saying these words. That you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command to you today. Even in the midst of the writings of Moses, the Israelites knew that unless God intervened, unless he circumcised their hearts or cleansed their hearts and changed them from the inside out, they would not be willing to obey. Even right here at the beginning of the book of the Bible, I gave you this quote from Salehammer a few weeks ago. It says, the Pentateuch itself, the first five books of the Bible itself, was not written to teach Israel the law. The Pentateuch was addressed to a people living already under the law and failing at every opportunity. The Pentateuch looks beyond the law to God and his grace. The purpose of the Pentateuch is to teach its readers about faith and hope in the new covenant. And so we know when we look at this, this isn't about following the law in order to earn God's grace. It's you can't do that unless God graciously changes your heart. And secondly, we know that this was not a religious code used to earn God's grace because of how it's structured with regard to the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. Let me explain to you what I mean a little bit. In the ancient Near East, it was customary for gods to act at the behest of the people. And so gods were just kind of sitting around on their mountaintop waiting for somebody to do the appropriate sacrifice or say the appropriate incantation, and then they'd act. That's how people viewed gods. They had priests that would know all of the proper things to do in order to get God to make someone fall in love with you or to make you uh, have a better successful life. 
They were able to manipulate the idols or the gods, or at least they believed so, by their religious worship. Their actions supposedly made God react. We're given a great example in the story of what's known as Balaam and Balak. It's referred to here when he says uh, what the Lord did at Baal Peor. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, let me just give you the intro here. The king of Moab that's on the east side of the Jordan, his name was Balak, and he summoned this guy named Balaam. Everybody say Balaam. 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 It's a good name for all of you uh, future parents. Balaam, right? No, you don't want to, no. If you know the Bible, you don't want to name him that. Maybe you could go with Balak, right? That would be really popular. So Balak summoned Balaam, and Balaam came from the land of Mesopotamia. See that green there? Okay, that's what we now know as Iraq and Iran, right? It's right on the border. And so Balaam came all the way from Mesopotamia, all the way over to the land of Canaan, over there by the Mediterranean Sea. And what Balaam was supposed to do was he was called out of a land full of idolatry and pagan worship to come and try and get the gods to intervene to curse Israel because Israel was hanging out in Moab's land. And the king of Moab was afraid that they were going to conquer them. And so Balaam was supposed to come to say, hey gods, I need you to curse Israel and destroy them. Now the reason he sent for Balaam, we can assume, is that Balaam had developed a reputation as being able to manipulate gods. What that means is that Balaam was effective in the realm of the demonic. You see, the Bible says that behind every pagan deity was a demonic entity. And so he was a demonic witch doctor of sorts that could get the gods, the demons, to do things on his behalf. At first he doesn't go, but after Yahweh speaks to him in a vision, he goes. But Yahweh's very specific. He says, only say what I tell you to say. When he finally gets to Moab, he meets King Balak, and we're going to join the story up there in Numbers 23. Turn to the left in your Bible to Numbers 23, starting in verse 1. Numbers 23, verse 1, it says, And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord, and remember L-O-R-D in the caps there in the Hebrew, it's actually Yahweh. The scribes didn't want to write out the name of God, so they put Adonai or Lord. That's why it says Lord in our English Bible. But perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me, because he knew this was the God of the Israelites. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. And God met Balaam, and Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. He thinks he's about to persuade Yahweh, just like he persuades the pagan deities. And Yahweh put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, from Aram Balak has, or Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and, I, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number forth the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. 
Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. You see, in the mind of most ancient Near East pagans, the appropriate sacrifice would manipulate the God to do what the person wanted. It looks something like this, okay? Just a little simple graphic. The action of man would require the reaction of God. And this is what all false religion is based on. And even our folk religion that we sometimes call Christianity in America is based on this idea. We think that the appropriate words, the appropriate prayer will get God to do something for us the way we want. That's how we're often taught to pray. R.D. Cole in his commentary on Numbers says this about similar rituals. When these rituals had been performed, the worshiper then appeared before the deity and announced to him or her that the offerings had been properly presented. The deity or deities then were obliged to respond to the individual in whatever manner desired. Now, Balaam was operating in a way he thought worked, but he was dealing with a different God. He was dealing with the one true God, Yahweh. And Yahweh was not a God who could be manipulated. Remember what God said about the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham back in Genesis 12? This is what he said as he blessed Abraham. He said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Balaam's third oracle, he will pronounce over Israel and end with these words in Numbers 24.9, Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. You see, the God of Israel was different. He acted and then the people responded. It wasn't the other way around as within false religions. The true religion of Yahweh, Yahweh acts and man responds. You see, the God of the Bible is not a God that can be manipulated. Rather than the actions of man making a God react, Yahweh acts and that makes his true people react to what he says. Those that believe in a false God think that God hears us and does what we want regardless of whether or not it is in his character or his mission. But see, true religion, when we pray, if it's within his character and within his mission, he will act out of that character and mission, not just because we asked him to. Prayer gets us on his same page, not the other way around. And what the Israelites had experienced is a God that acts out of his gracious character, regardless of whether or not they deserved it. And because of that, he calls them to respond in obedience. So when we say the Old Testament is about laws that the Israelites had to follow to gain God's grace, we completely misread the Old Testament. You see, while Abraham was worshiping false gods, God called him out in grace and blessing. Abraham didn't have to do anything. While Israel was combining their worship of Yahweh with Egyptian gods, a practice that showed up at the mountain when they worshiped the golden calf, God still saved them and redeemed them by his grace without them doing anything. While they were in rebellion in the wilderness, God provided food and water for them in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their complaining. The God of the Bible has always been and is now and will always be a God of grace. He's never acted differently. He's never required you to earn his good favor. He's always loved you before you loved him. And it's from this gracious, loving relationship with Israel 
that God calls his people to obey him and follow him, not to earn his love, but as a result of what he's done for them. And it is this same God that came incarnate in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, to be with us, to teach us the heart of the Father, to die in our place and atone for our sins, even though we were his enemies. Romans 5.8 says that, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you think you have to clean up or finally make yourself holy in order for God to take notice of you, then you completely misunderstand the God of grace. He's a God who's already noticed you. He's already died for you. He's already called you to himself. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his overwhelming love. The good news that Jesus brought us is that our hearts are evil and wicked and far from God. And yet by his grace, not because we earned it, God gave us a way of reconciliation with the Father. If we confess our sins and repent from our rebellion against God, he is quick to forgive us. And he'll cleanse us from unrighteousness. And he'll regenerate our hearts through the work of his Holy Spirit and cause us to have our greatest desire be to fulfill his wishes and his mission. And that will propel us in a life constantly moving in greater and greater holiness towards his image. This is the God of the Bible, Old Testament and New. Legalism, the belief of all false religions, says do this and God will love you and give you life. Grace, the truth of the Bible, says God loves you, desires life for you, and saved you. So now, join him and follow his commands. Go in and possess the land Show his justice, show his righteousness in the way you respond to his grace. And what Moses is referring to here in Deuteronomy 4 is that mission of God's people. You can write this down. The mission of God's people. It's a proclamation of God's just character. The mission of God's people is a proclamation of God's just character. If you go back to Deuteronomy 4 with me, you can notice that Israel was not supposed to just listen, but listen to the rules and statutes and do them. Everybody look back at Deuteronomy 4. Give me an amen if you're there. Amen. I'll wait for the rest of you. In Deuteronomy 4, it says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you. Now, in most American churches, we would just put the period there. Listen. And go about your business. Am I done listening to the pastor yet? I think it's time for lunch, right? That would be most American churches. Listen to the rules that he's teaching. And what does it say next? Do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. Now, couldn't they just go in and go to war and take over the land? Why is it so important that the main thrust of God's mission is to follow his laws? Is God just a killjoy? What's going on? Why was obedience so important? Well, let's read the next section of chapter 4 and we'll find out why. Look at verse 5. See, he says, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God, again Yahweh my God, commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So in other words, possession wasn't just a warfare term. It was a way of life that you would possess the land by doing the law. 
Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently. That word keep is shamar in the Hebrew. It means protect or guard. Guard your soul diligently. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. And lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on that day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, Yahweh said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might, what's that say? Do them in the land that you are going over to possess. The book of James says a person who listens to God's law and doesn't do it is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. He says a faith that does not act is dead. You can call yourself faithful as much as you want. There is a message throughout the entire grand narrative of Scripture that we are called to both listen and do. When Israel obeyed the laws of Yahweh, they were going to proclaim the wisdom and understanding of the God they serve. They were going to show that Yahweh is a just and righteous God. The very word for rules used early there in chapter 4 is a Hebrew word that means just decrees. Just justice. Not only were they to be a prophetic voice proclaiming that Yahweh was the only God. He was conqueror of all false religions. But in doing so, they were also supposed to act in a way that illustrated and imaged who Yahweh was to the world around them. And this is a theme all throughout Scripture. It's not just here. You guys remember that that was the end of Psalm 147 that was read by Patrick earlier this morning? It said this, He declares his word to Jacob. That's another name for Israel. His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They, the other nations, do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Romans 3.2, Paul echoes this when he is describing why it's of value to be an Israelite. And he says this, he says, much in every way it's of value to be a Jew. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were the ones among all the nations that God chose and gave his truth to so that they might be a different people. In his first pronouncement over Israel, you guys just read it, Balaam there in 23.9 says this, For from the top of the crags I see him, Israel, the people of Israel, from the hills I behold him, behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Something was to be different about Israel. They had no ruler other than God and no law other than his law. Now, what was so different about these laws? 
Well, these laws brought a sense of justice that the world had not seen to this point. Even in comparison to the laws of other civilizations at the time, they were far more just, far more equitable. One set of laws was known as the Code of Hammurabi. How many of you have ever heard of that before? Raise your hand. The Code of Hammurabi. It's referenced often. uh, It was either on large pillars or sometimes it was written uh, like this in in cuneiform uh, tablets. This is in the Louvre in Paris. And this basically set forth the law of a king known as Hammurabi. This was one of the many law codes that came from around around the time of Abraham uh, here in Genesis. And there was even a law code from the city of Ur, where Abraham was from, called the Code of Ur-Namu, another wonderful name for you prospective parents, named after King Namu. That was a joke, by the way. Tough crowd today. Now, these law codes helped us to see the distinctions that the set law law of Yahweh um, was different and, and was set apart from. Um, Let me give you a couple of those distinctions. First, the law of Moses was given directly from God to the people. Okay? You can write that down. It was distinct because the law of Moses was given directly from God to the people. Guys, this had never happened before in the history of mankind. The Code of Hammurabi and the Code of Ur-Namu are named after kings, Hammurabi and Namu. For pagan religions out of Babylon, or what we know as Iraq currently, their kings were their gods. Okay? Their kings were their gods in fleshly form. And so the laws had come to the people from the kings. The people couldn't get close to the gods. And so the difference for Israel was that they followed a God who, as we just read in Deuteronomy 4, spoke to them out of the cloud. You see, his first go-to wasn't to just go to Moses. Deuteronomy 4 gives us more information that he actually spoke to them out of the cloud. And so rather than the law coming from the kings, the people had a direct relationship, a personal relationship with Yahweh. And this is why the laws of Yahweh are so different. They're given directly from God. Moses wasn't a king. Moses was a freed slave just like them. And this is why the people that saw the laws of Yahweh would act out and say, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Only Israel had their God as their king and a personal relationship with him. I was talking to someone recently who's very near and dear to me. They've struggled a lot in life, but they have kind of this distant relationship with God. And I asked them, after going through so much hardship in life, why they still held on to the idea of a loving God. And the response was amazing. She looked at me and she said, I'm hoping against hope that the God I believe in isn't the real God, but the God you believe in, Hans, is. She stands in a religious view of who God is, but doesn't even truly believe in it because that God offers no hope because that God is very distant. She's Catholic. She has to go through a priest in order to talk to her God. But the God we serve is a personal God who loves each one of us dearly and has given us each the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. We don't have to go to a king. We don't need someone else to mediate on our behalf Because Jesus Christ already did that work. And Jesus Christ wants a personal relationship with you today. 
The gods of these false religions were claiming to speak for God. Or, sorry, the, the kings of these false religions were claiming to speak for God. And it is for this reason that many theologians believe that the book of Deuteronomy is speaking with an intent to debate against and combat against these falsely so-called laws of justice. Now, it's really interesting to me. I'm kind of a nerd, so this may not be interesting to you, but it's interesting to me that at the same time as these kings, the king of Hammurabi, uh, the, uh, the, the king Namu, were claiming to know God and produce his justice, God called Abraham out of the exact same civilization to be his own special people and to bring forth a law of righteousness and justice. I quote this to you guys often from Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham and his offspring would be the bearers of the heart of the one true creator God by following the commands of that God. And we have the same mission today. Do you realize this, church? It's amazing what happens and how polarizing it is when I bring up the word justice in church circles. Some pastors freak out at me. Social justice, are you kidding me? That's secular stuff. Don't bring that in here. Other pastors, they dive so far into justice that they forget the gospel. And they never declare with their mouth that Jesus is the one true God. There is a counterfeit justice at work. You see, Satan isn't one who comes and shows up with a pitchfork and horns. The Bible says he comes and he's very attractive. And so you see bumper stickers that could pass for Christians. You know, perform random acts of kindness. Hey, that's a fruit of the Spirit. They must be a Christian. Probably not. We as Christians are called to bring the truth of what justice is, to bring the truth of what righteousness is, because Satan is always at work trying to produce a counterfeit justice, a counterfeit righteousness. And we can do that because we, like the Israelites, had a God that was near to us. Well, secondly, the law of Moses was different. You can write this down. It was different than those of the surrounding nations because it was more just. Not only was it given by a God who was close to them, but it was more just than those of the surrounding nations. While these law codes of Hammurabi and ur and many others have many similarities to the law code of Moses, and you'll often hear atheists say, see, it's just one more law code, it's the same, might as well get rid of it. The laws of the Israelites step it up a notch. One commentator put it this way, Modern scholars have compared biblical law to other legal systems of the ancient Near East and have shown a number of principles in biblical law that are unique in the ancient Near East, such as laws to improve the treatment of aliens and sojourners and bondservants, the prohibition of collective and vicarious punishment, and the absence of capital punishment for economic crimes. In the Code of Hammurabi, if a woman is accused of adultery, you're supposed to throw her into the the river, and if she survives the drowning, then she's not guilty, right? The law of of Moses is far different. There is none of that sorcery feel. There's a justice in the midst of it. And the laws of the Jews were different for a reason. The ethical lives they were to lead were ultimately to proclaim to the nations that the God they served was different that he was just and righteous, and that the people of God were taught that the world would be interested in knowing them if they actually acted out of the commands of his just character. But time and time again, they failed at this. 
And this is why Moses mentions the incident at Baal Peor. After Balak yelled at Balaam because he did not curse Israel, he gave Balak some advice. He convinced the Moabite king to send some of his Moabite women, most likely temple prostitutes, after some of the Israelite men to get them to participate in the worship of the god of Baal Peor. Let me just save some of your stomachs by describing their worship this way. It was disgusting, even by 2018 standards. And at the minimum, it included cultic prostitution. And the only solution to stopping it was for God to bring justice on his own people. You can go and read the story there in Numbers 23 through 25 on your own. And so here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses reminds the Israelites of this failing because it was their tendency to not stay truly and wholly allegiant to the God of Abraham, but to interweave their worship of other gods into what they believed Yahweh was. And he was warning them that they did this towards their own destruction. Unfortunately, this was the history of Israel. They would interweave all of the idolatry with the God they supposedly served. But church, what I want to tell you this morning is that just because the Israelites failed does not mean we discard chapter 4. Well, it's obviously not possible. We're sinners saved by grace, so what do we do with this? No, this is in fact still the mission of God's people. You should read Deuteronomy 4 not as a command for long past, but as a command for each of us who truly claim the name of Jesus here today. It's still our mission because it's still the mission of God's people. There is something that has to be different about those of us that call ourselves believers. You see, knowing the sinful hearts of man, God knew that he would need to change their hearts. That's why he says in Deuteronomy he would circumcise our hearts. And to accomplish that, the Father sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and the sins of all mankind so that we might be brought into relationship with the Father again. And Jesus accomplished this by being perfectly obedient, by perfectly fulfilling Moses' command here in chapter 4. A person could look at Jesus and say, there is Yahweh. If you've seen me, he says, you've seen who? The Father. And because of that, that perfect obedience, he went even to his death on the cross. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And once he resurrected, proving that he had broken the power of sin and death, he ascended into heaven and 40 days later he poured out his spirit upon his people so that his people, the church, would be regenerated and they might live not for themselves any longer, but to fulfill the mission of Christ. That we might live to proclaim his gospel both with our mouths and our actions. If you believe in a Christianity that says, Jesus did everything, so you're good, now you can go on about your life, just wait for heaven, you'll get there when you die because you prayed a prayer, you believe in a false gospel. This is what the Bible actually says. Romans 6, 17 through 18. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15 says, As obedient children, notice that there's no longer if you obey, it's you do obey. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
Dear brothers and sisters, we do not do the things we do because they are easy. We do not follow Christ because he will bring us security and comfort by American standards. We act in the name of Christ in all that we do so that the world might know the wonderful character of our perfect, loving, compassionate, and just God. So that they might know that he is the God that cares for the fatherless, that cares for the widow, the poor, and the sojourner. We do the things we do so that they might know he is a God that is near to the brokenhearted. So that they might know that he is a God that rejoices in repentance and is ready to grant forgiveness no matter who you are or what you have done. We do what we do not to earn the love of God, but because of the love of God so that we might actually act as the body of Christ in physical form manifesting the heart of Jesus in the flesh to a lost and dying world. And we do all of this because of the same motivation that was given to Israel in Deuteronomy 4. You can write this down. The motivation of God's people, a personal and intimate relationship with God. The motivation of God's people, a personal and intimate relationship with God. I remember when I started the church, another person very near and dear to me said to me, I was a IT manager that had moved up pretty quick and I was making a really good deal of money and they said to me, why on earth would you want to go start a church? Why would you do that? You make good money here and you're a lay, lay elder at your church, just stay there, you can minister and make lots of money. Why would you do that? And I tried to attempt to let them know that I wanted to lay my life down for the Lord that laid his life down for me. It was one small thing I could do. When a person asks you, why do you do what you do, what's your answer? What your answer should be is the perfect laying out of the gospel, that because Jesus died for you, you die for him each and every day and lay down your life not for your kingdom, but for his. Last week, we looked at the idea that relationship with God is not a means to achieve our goals. It is the goal, relationship with Jesus. And this is what Moses is pointing out to the people. You see, rather than communicating through humans, Yahweh wanted to be a God close to his people. So like I said, there in Deuteronomy 4, he showed up on the mountain. And it says in verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, you heard the sound of his words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. No other religion can claim that God came directly to the people with whom he was in covenant relationship. Exodus 31.18 says that the very words that were written on those tablets were carved by the finger of God. And perhaps this was why God was so angry when the people would later call out for a king. Many of you know the story. Samuel went to him and said, God, the people want a king. And this is what he responds with in 1 Samuel 8, 6. It says, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
You see, the reason that the people failed was because they wanted to look like everyone else around them. They wanted to compete with the Joneses, so to speak. They wanted the Instagram and the Facebook posts to look like everyone else. They wanted their life to be as successful as their neighbors. And they had the same idols as everyone around them. But the people of God are called to be different. Yahweh was to be their king and they refused him. But again, the refusal of the people would not stop God's plan for in Jesus Christ, God would once again be enthroned upon the praises of his people. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Father's plan. And Jesus Christ is calling you to be his people each and every day. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I would beg of you to give your allegiance to him today. What he did on the cross was for you. He died for you to show you that he loves you. And his call to you is to join him in the mission of declaring that same message to a lost and dying world. And so if you're a person that doesn't know him today, you have to wrestle with the fact that a man named Yeshua of Nazareth died 2,000 years ago, rose again, and was followed by many people who were willing to go to a death because of the truth that they saw with their own two eyes. Will you give your heart to Jesus today? You can do it right where you sit. You can cry out to him in confession that you have turned your back on him and declare him to be your savior and king. And if you would like to talk through that and learn what it's all about, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. I'll be in the back during worship and I'd love to speak with you about what it is to follow Jesus. But if you're already a follower of Jesus, I want you to see the parallels today of how this section of Deuteronomy is a word not just to Israel, but to us. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, it says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, Bible quiz time, everybody. You ready for this? You ready? Yes or no? Yeah, okay. Old Testament or New Testament? Some of you are like, trick question? No, Old Testament. Okay, Old Testament. Here's the words of 1 Peter. Now, ready? Old Testament or New Testament? 1 Peter. New. New Testament. Okay, after Jesus came, notice that the words are almost the exact same. But you, the church are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, God told his people that they would be his special people used to declare him to the nations. But in Exodus, there was an if. If you will indeed obey my voice. Notice now there is no if. If you are a Christian, you are that. And we are that special people. To go back and respond to my coworker's original question about what makes Christians different, I would respond that true believers of Christ are a just people because of their personal relationship with God. If you're sitting here today and you've been hurt by the church or you've seen the abuses of the church, then I would beg your forgiveness on behalf of the church. But I I would also submit to you, don't base your view of Jesus Christ and his true followers off of a few bad apples. Look at those who truly submit to him. 
Dear church, we are a different people proclaiming a different God. If we want to be a people that the world listens to, we must prove that our God is different, not just by our words, but by our actions, by our love and service for one another and for those outside the church. We must point them to Jesus, but we must do so by calling them to see Jesus manifested in our very lives individually and corporately. And to do that, it takes sacrifice every day. It takes death of your kingdom so that he might rise up. This morning, I pray that we would be a people that grasp the importance of the mission we've been given. It is to proclaim the gospel through our words, absolutely. But even more importantly, to proclaim the gospel of Christ and to back our words by giving a foretaste of the kingdom that he's called us to be. By being a people that show him in the way we love one another and in the way we serve the vulnerable around us. As we go into worship, I want each of us to consider which area of what I've talked about today God is calling us to to a deeper walk in this morning. First, I want to address those of you that when you hit the point where we talked about the motivation of God's people, you might be a person today who's sitting here zoning out. You might be a person who thinks, man, I am never motivated to read my Bible, to go to church, to actually follow the Lord. I just love my life too much and I want to do whatever I want to do. If that's you, I would suggest to you today that you cast your eyes upon Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Do you know and understand the costliness of what he accomplished for you? Because the second you do, it will break you. And your kingdom will be of no value. Do you understand what Jesus sacrificed for you? I guarantee you that when you cast your eyes into the eyes of Jesus, everything else will fade away and your motivation will come. Secondly, if you're a person who's taken aback by the fact that you were called to be responsible in covenant obedience, maybe you're a person who's bought into the false gospel that Jesus died, so I'm good until I go to heaven, I can live the life I want to live. If that's you, I want to ask you, do you even know the commands of Christ? When was the last time you opened your Bible? When was the last time you sought out what God was commanding you to do? And I would suggest to you today that the very simple thing that you can do is to dig into God's word to find your marching orders. This week, start reading the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Start reading the book of James, the book of Proverbs. Start reading Romans 12 through 14 or Ephesians 4 through 6. All of the sections that talk about how we as Christians are to live. And ask yourself, what do I need to change in my life to show Christ and show his justice to the world? Third, maybe you're a person that you didn't really even know that you were supposed to take part in the mission of Christ. I want to ask you, in what ways are you going to jump into the work of the kingdom this week? In what ways can you add to what the Lord is doing in this world? And I would suggest you start small. Pick just one thing. Start by volunteering within your church. Start by looking into foster care so that you might eventually step into it. If that's not for you, provide respite for those in this church that do. Or maybe you could take part in what we're doing as a church through generosity to Burkina Faso, to Haiti. 
Or maybe the Lord is simply calling you to proclaim the gospel to someone you work with or go to school with. In some way, shape, or form, I would ask you to change one thing this week so that you can take part in what the Lord is doing. For many of you in this church, I want to say this last thing. So many of you in this church are already actively engaged. I'm not worried about your motivation because you know the love of Jesus Christ and it propels you forward. So many of you in this church, you don't have to know the commands of Christ because you're in the word reading them. So many of you in this church, you don't need to be asked if you're taking part in the mission of Christ because by your very lives, you are showing that you are working at the command of your king. For all those of you in this church that that is true for, I would echo the words Dallas said earlier. Well done, good and faithful servants. I want mission to be a place where people can look and say, that is a church that I know Jesus exists in. And I want us to be a people that as we scatter from this gathering every week, we go into our places of work, into our schools and into our neighborhoods, and people get a glimpse that would draw them into the kingdom of Christ. Let's truly be that people.